Torah isn't education, it's transformation. This is Chai Chinuch with Rabbi G. 101.9 FM Chai Chinuch with Rabbi G. We are back as we do every Monday between 2 to 3 where we discuss education. Chinuch, what, how to be a better person, how to improve the world, how can I improve the community, what can I do to influence everyone around me, myself, my family, and just grow as humans to a better place, a better future, and better community. Very exciting week coming up, as we know that uh, matrix, um, the answers are coming out, and the results, and we're all waiting in anticipation, very exciting. And for that topic, I've asked Rabbi Ricky Sif to join us today for today's show. Uh, Rabbi Sif, I'm sure you all know, but just in case for the small chance that we have a listener who's not with us and in knowing Rabbi Sif, he is the, um, Rabbi Sif is the head of the Jewish, um, Jewish Education Board, Deputies Board, and he is leading the education in the Jewish community. And while leading the education of the Jewish community, obviously we'd like to speak about the metric results and considering that in many of our day schools we are having dual curriculums, well, does that affect the metric? Does that improve? How do we go together with that? So first, let's start with just uh, hearing a bit about the metric and what's happening and getting to speak to Rabbi Siv. Good afternoon, Rabbi. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Rabbi Gartner. Lovely to be with you. Thanks for inviting me onto the show. So a big week coming up. It's a huge week coming up, uh, you know, as, as much as uh, a lot of wonderful things happen in all of our schools and you know, there's amazing activities and a lot to focus on during the year. In the end of the day, the metric results are a really big part of that. It's the culmination of, of, of 12 years of a long journey in all of our schools and a very important milestone for our kids. So, yes, it is, it's a high-stakes event um, and a very important one that we end up being very proud of usually year after year. Yes, so what's the vibe? People, kids are nervous, waiting, anticipating, exciting, predicting. So what's interesting is that, you know, over the last two years, the, 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 the date for release of metric results has been pushed out um, by the Department of Education. So actually, whether you write IEB or you write the general metric, um, it's, it's happening later. So it used to happen within the year that they finished. So there was always like this fever pitch um, in the build-up. Now it's a bit more calm given that the kids have already moved on. A lot of them maybe are overseas already. So it's actually a little bit calmer than it's been in the past. Um, but there's a great vibe, a lot of anticipation in the air. Um, but we're expecting great results as, as usual. So considering the great results as, u- as usual, and, and we know that the reputation is, is really amazing, at the same time we know that the school is running dual curriculums and we know that other schools, Jewish school, day schools here, are holding a, f- a religious curriculum and a, uh, a the general language cu- curriculum and the metric. Does that generally affect in any way for positive or for negative or in, and where does that come into play? So I think maybe it's important before we delve into the actual depth of the question, I think just on, on a very surface level, it's clear to me that there's absolutely no detrimental effect of the dual curriculum at all on the students in the Jewish day schools. Obviously, I'm more actively involved within the King David space, but I pay close attention to the uh, the results across all of the schools. Um, and there's absolutely no impact. You know, and I understand when, when often when parents begin a journey in, in a, an environment where there is a dual curriculum, there's that question because a lot of time goes towards the Jewish and religious chinuch, the education, whether that be through the ongoing Hebrew, uh, the Jewish studies, the davening in the mornings. There's a lot of time dedicated towards Jewish ethos. And, and from the outside, a parent could ask a question which does seem on face value to be fair as well if, my kids could be having that time doing maths or doing science. 
Are they sacrificing by doing the dual curriculum? And I, I do believe without fail and without exception, every single one of our Jewish schools has disproved that theory. Our kids come out with top results in maths and in science while doing the dual curriculum. Um, there's absolutely no evidence to suggest yeah. that this dual curriculum has impacted on the, the, the results in the general subjects. Um, and if anything, maybe it could be argued that they uh, actually assist, which we may get into because the results are so outstanding in the Jewish schools that I, I, I do believe it speaks for itself. Um, our Hebrew results in particular, and I'm talking again within the King David context, but the Hebrew results where that's still a matric subject and ch- children can choose that from um, grade 10 and moving up into to matric, they can choose Hebrew as a matric subject. The results are off the charts. Uh, the kids do brilliantly in Hebrew. They committed to it. And the impact of taking those subjects from a trick, I think, on the longevity of a child's Jewish identity is also significant. So there's a lot to weigh up here when discussing the dual curriculum. But I do believe that the evidence strongly suggests that, if anything, it may enhance the education. It definitely is not detrimental in any way. Which is exactly what I want to want to dive into together with you, considering that, as you said, we're we're seeing the kids consistently getting great results, or young adults already getting great, great results year after year, and considering that they do have less time to put in it, there's obviously something happening, which maybe we could try discuss and see what are the great benefits because something great and big is happening. So we do have an announcement, and then when we come back, we'll discuss uh, exactly that, how we fit them both in. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. 101.9 Hi FM, Hi G. We are back in a fascinating discussion with Rabbi Ricky Sif, who he is the general director of the South African Board of Jewish Education, and we are discussing the upcoming metric results and considering past experience, the exciting uh, results that we're going to be getting uh, shortly in this big week coming ahead. And before the break, we were speaking about the concept of kids doing so well, considering that they do have a dual curriculum. And not only that there's no evidence whatsoever that the dual curriculum is damaging the results, we're actually seeing that in the less time that they have, they are doing amazing work, which is really fascinating to us. And as we dive into it, I would love to hear from you. Any comments, anything, anything you want to say about the matrix coming up or to Rabbi Ricky Seifert to me, please SMS 34519 is the SMS line. Any questions coming up? Telegram 061-895-1019. 061-895-1019 is a telegram. So thank you, Rabbi Seif. So we are here in this discussion. So right before the break, as we said, we were speaking about the, the benefits and seeing these great results. In your opinion, why are we seeing such good results while we're running dual curriculums? How's that possible? I think it's, uh, <laughs> Besides yeah, it's a hard good work. question. Okay. Hard work. I do think a, a big amount of credit is due to, to the teachers in our systems as well as to the incredible parents. At the end of the day, Jewish parents pride themselves on giving their children an excellent education and therefore push them. They, they do want the best for their children. So it's a combination, that wonderful combination that we're blessed to have in our community of committed parents, outstanding teachers. And I think that's at the fundamental, at the root um, of getting these great results. But I think, Rabbi, also just in terms of the benefits, you know, there's different types of benefits we can speak to. There's the emotional, social, community benefits of being involved in a dual curriculum system. And then there's the academic benefits. And perhaps... You know, it was interesting in, 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 in when I knew that you were going to be calling me today, I dug up a beautiful book that I have in my office that Rabbi Kesef left for me when he went to to Israel, which was called Gleanings. And it's a book written by Rabbi Isaac Goss, 
who was the founder, one of the founders of the South African Board of Jewish Education in the 40s um, and 50s. And he's got, he's got a beautiful, beautiful book where he writes just his thoughts on Jewish education. Okay. And I think the primary benefit which we have to talk to of a dual curriculum is the fact that when you're immersed in a school, that provides those Jewish benefits, Jewish education, Hebrew. It's not just subjects. It's an immersion in a culture and a way of life. And that is so deep and so powerful for a child to grow up in. Because it could be argued, this was the case um, of, of generations gone by of, of a lot of our parents. Okay, Rabbi, I think we, we are... Yeah, and they yeah. learned those things there, which is critically important, uh, valuable. But you can't replace what a Sunday... For your child as to what an immersion in a Jewish dual curriculum environment does. It's part of the system, as we would say, it gets into the kishkas of the child. It forms their identity. It's not something that's burdensome that perhaps happens on the weekend or after hours, but it's really baked into the child, into their identity, into it their becomes day. part of who so they for are. Me, that's who they are. It's who they are. It's who they are. It's they're immersed in it. It's not a subject that happens extracurricularly after school. I mean, I know my you know, I've had many conversations with people in our community who had to go to the, the Chaders. Um, and there's some brilliant Sunday schools in Johannesburg as well, by the way. So this is in no way detracting from them. Um, they do a brilliant job for those families who need them. But it's, it's an after-hours thing. It's after school. Whereas when you're immersed in a culture and you're immersed in a Hebrew language, you're immersed in Jewish studies, you have davening every day as part of the community it has very powerful impacts on the child's sense of identity and who they are. So for me, I think that's the first plus and the first benefit to a dual curriculum system is that you're in it. You're immersed, and that's very hard to replace or to manufacture in any other way. Okay, so that definitely comes into that space of, you know, the culture and who you are and how you identify. And, and it does, as you said, it's not a subject. Does that affect the student's Jewish life later at the years to come? Or are you seeing it as through their adolescence or even once they've matriculated from university and they moved on and they started their families or even immigrated or stayed here in the country? Where does that come into play? Yeah, it's a great question as well. I think that the um, it's quite a nuanced question because I think it depends very much on the families and the environment we're talking about. I'm, I'm here not representing King David. I'm here really just speaking about education in general. So obviously you would probably find a, a higher level of affiliation in the more religious schools as people move forward. But even in a King David, I mean, it's incredible to see uh, we serve our matrics um, every four years, our grade eights and our matrics. And we've just seen a marked improvement in level of Jewish pride in our students, Jewish identity. Um, it's hard for a school to influence that once a child leaves and goes to university and then is in the working world. It's very hard to have influence on that. But we do know that when the children are leaving our schools, that sense of Jewish pride is unbelievable. Um, uh, you know, we do an extensive survey and, and the, the level of connection that the children have to community, to emunah, belief in Hashem, um, uh, you know, understanding the importance of Hebrew, of the land of Israel, that's, it's significant. And I do believe that a lot of that comes from the families, but a significant amount comes from the school um, because of their immersion over time. And at the end of the day, it's a school rabbi, as we know, so, you know, children may not always, it might not always resonate with them, you know, a subject is a subject and tests are tests. Exactly. Um, even in the Jewish realm. So, so while kids are going through it, they may not always love it or enjoy it, but I do believe that that immersion has a very, very powerful, deep impact that comes through later in life. And I think where we see that very often is just the high incidence of parents in our systems, all the systems coming back to their schools sending children back to the schools that they went to. Um, today is a very open world, and 
private schools. There are a lot of brilliant private schools out there. But we ha- find a very high incidence of returnees, of second generations coming that back to all of our schools, which indicates that exactly that's the proofs in the pudding. That's saying, you know what, I want that for my child as well. Um, so there's no doubt about it that I think that immersion really pays off and makes an impact on the children in the long run. Amazing. Uh, let's talk about the education part, part of things a bit. I, I know we started off from the matric and the academics, etc. But where is the school role? And, and as the leader of the um, the Jewish African Board of Education, um, what are you seeing regarding community resilience, the, the role of the school as um, helping the kids beyond their identity, but also as South Africans, as we're going through rough times, we're going through, I mean, I don't know if you're seeing the effect. I mean, some of the principals spoke to me, the kids are coming tired after nights of load shedding or whatever it is that any area of that we're affected in as a nation, in a country, as and in a, as a community, does the school play a role and how much of that role does the school play in, in kind of looking after the resilience and emotional stability of the kids and the families? 100%. I, you know, this is a very tough subject because there's no question. It's, it's visible. It's evident to anybody involved in education. It's evident to our parents that our kids are in a different space and they're in a different world. I think that COVID accelerated that. Um, the extent of, of, of mental issues of, have been really accelerated. Um, anxiety, depression, um, have, and, we, and we're seeing rises from that across all of the schools. And, and I, I think COVID really did accelerate that. Um, so it's imperative and incumbent on every school to look in the mirror and do whatever we can. Um, but I do believe that it can't only be the schools. And I think parents are also struggling. I think oh, we have to acknowledge that, that financial pressure, um, the constant talk of immigration, the load shedding, um, and parents' own mental space after the COVID pandemic is also very precarious. So I think the only way for us to solve this as a community has to be a holistic approach. It can't just be the school because the school doesn't make all the decisions in a child's life. It has to be with parents, but we need community organizations to reach out to parents and try to offer support and guidance to parents too. Um, you know, focusing just on the child in school is definitely part of it, and we have to, and schools have to look in the mirror and do whatever they can and do the research they need to to support students as best as possible. But I don't think that's going to solve the problem. I think parents need tools. Parents need coaching. I think community leaders, uh, rabbis, rebbitsons, psychologists, all of us really need to be looking at this thing holistically together if we want to make a, a real marked impact and improve the situation. Uh, 100%. However, as you're speaking, something comes to mind, which I think is maybe one of the um, importance of school and maybe in South Africa more than other places in the world is – when we talk consistently talk about financial pressure and immigration and load shedding and the future of uh, of the community and what's going to be and everything, that's quite depressing. And considering the security situation in South Africa right now, majority of the time kids are spending with their parents. And while they're consistently with adults, adults can be at times depressing. No offense to any of our listeners. I'm sure it's not you, but other people. And the kids are just carrying all of that. Almost seems like the only normal time of day that a child has to play with his pairs and children with children and run and jump and be sporty and get the physical, you know, balance that they need is in school. Do the, so while the schools are playing such a huge role, are we seeing that role as a more important thing that we would see in other schools around the world? That's a great question. I can't answer by the other school systems and what's going on in other places. Um, but, what we're but you're right. On. I think schools such a, 
school is such a healthy outlet. That's the bottom line. And that's why we, we, it's important that all schools encourage their students to get involved in school life. They should be involved in any way that they can, whether that's the extramural sports, whether that's the clubs offered after school. Um, schools have to provide more because the more they're providing, the more those are healthy outlets, both mentally, emotionally, and physically for the children. Um, the one challenge, though, Rabbi, which I believe is something that we can't shy away from as a community is the amount of time on devices. Um, and that's not pointing fingers at children only. That's really at us, the adults, too. Um, when while you write, they're home and they're with adults and those conversations sometimes may de- be depressing. Students also exposed to a tremendous amount online. And while online, the online world can have benefits and can be positive in many ways um, with access to information and that sort of thing, it can also be very detrimental. And I think most parents aren't fully aware all the time of what their student, what their children are being exposed to, what influences they're being exposed to. And that is something also we need to grapple with is that the, the social media, the online world is also having a big impact on the mental health of our students. Um, so school is positive and school is an incredible place to be. And, and that's why I'm a big ag- advocate personally for being in a physical school as opposed to being in an online school because those benefits of a physical school are just incredible in so many respects. Um, but we do also have to figure out this online world. Can't, we cannot be naive as the adults in, our, in, our, in these children's lives. Again, as parents, educators, we have to be grappling with this online world because it really thrusts a lot of adult concepts, scary concepts, and things into st- children's worlds that they aren't emotionally ready for. And, and I do believe that that level of exposure is having an impact on the the emotional well-being of our students as well. Completely. And, and I'd say even including the not only with the content and what they're seeing and the, and the bullying of social media and, and le- leaving kids out, there's also just the amount of hours a child is without movement and the anxiety raises when, when we don't have the, the you know, the, the physical uh, sensory modulation and considering the the uh, the brain stress of the consistent uh, screens. Would you say that there's a gap between what you as educators are seeing and between what parents are believing is the reality. Definitely. But it's important that I'm not criticizing parents in any way. I'm a parent. I have uh, children in this space as well. It's so hard to manage. We can't be on top of our kids 24-7. We don't want to become draconian. We don't want to be thrusting rules at them incessantly. It's a very difficult balance for parents to strike. So this is in no way a criticism of parents. Um, but I Definitely not. I, I would say even more. The parents want the best thing for their children. However, my question is if they are aware of what it's actually doing to their children. I think they're aware. Sometimes they feel a bit power, powerless to, to stop it. Uh, because we, we can't actually articulate clearly enough how important this is to the children. These days, this is their mode of social contact. So if a parent's too hard and too draconian, they end up putting in too many blockages to their child, it may impact their social life. That's unfortunately where it's at. So parents are, their hands are a little bit tied. Although I did, I had a lot of exposure in my previous role as a, as a school principal where there is a lot of naivety. Uh, parents believe that their kids are just playing games or that their kids are just, uh, you know, playing Pac-Man or, <laughs> or healthy games, but that's not really what's going on. Um, and there is a level of naivety. Um, and I think we need to somehow get over that, whether through education or through parents having more open communication with their children, um, some clear rules or, or, or guidelines. Um, so it's a combination of parents feeling a bit stuck, not knowing how hard to be, where to draw the line, 
and a level of naivety, which, which we do need to address because children as young as primary school children are exposed to things that uh, these parents weren't exposed to until they were in their teenage years. And uh, there's a lot of scary stuff out there. So, so we, we can't be naive anymore. Okay. And are we seeing trades? And I know this is a very hard topic, and I'm sorry if I'm asking a hard question, but are we starting to see trades of addiction that are affecting the children's functionality when it comes to the amount of time on screens, the, uh, the fight for it, the feeling that if I don't have it, that's the end of the world and I will do anything, including anything to get to it? Or you think it's still in a more balance? Obviously, it's not a one answer for every parent, but just as trades. Well, I can tell you this much, Rabbi, if I'm going to be self-facing at the moment. With, our children are addicted, but so are we. And, you know, when I say to my children, guys, you know, put down the screens. It's enough already on the screens. They say, well, Dad, look at you. You come home and you're on the screen all the you time. You text so them and it's enough already. All of us, all of us are addicted. Um, there's no question about it. And, and I think maybe that's the starting point for the discussion is maybe we as parents have to put more more clearer guidelines in for ourselves and how we manage us, our, our uh, internet use or our, our cell phone use as the role model for the kids to do the same. Um, but there's no question there's an addiction. Uh, children feel very, very lost without their phones. And as I said, a lot of their social lives are on their phones at the moment. That's how they communicate. They don't make phone calls anymore. They WhatsApp. Um, and, and therefore, we, we have to deal with this thing sensitively and cleverly but there's no question that we're, they, the kids are addicted, and I'd venture to say most of the adults are addicted too. I, I completely. So, so in a way, if we take the school that we were used to growing up in school, and we, we had pretty much a, a clear distinction between, you know, you had school life and you had home life, and you had the social friends from school and the social friends from home. And it was quite a separation. The parents were very responsible and in charge of what's happening at home, and the school was very, uh, uh, you know, hands-on in what's happening in school. Now we have this middle world that's the virtual world that is taking part in both of these environments, and we're consistently overlapping between parents and schools. And considering that educators have so much information that there's some kind of feeling that I'm sensing that the parents are not aware of how much, what do we need to do? to actually up our game to start addressing this third world that is completely enmeshed between our school life and our home life that is affecting all of us. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. 101.9, we are back in the middle of a fascinating discussion. I have to say, really enjoying, although I always enjoy this show. I hope you too as well. And I'm here talking to Rabbi Ricky Sif. Rabbi Ricky Sif, as you've probably heard already in this discussion, is the leader, I'd say. And, and I want to call you leader, even though you are the, uh, you're holding the high position of director. And I think you, this, place is a leader, but you're general director of the South African Board of Jewish Education. And we were speaking about this third world that's coming in between the two very clear boundaried world we had. Growing up, we knew that there's a school life and there's home life and there's friends from home and from the neighborhood and friends from school. And kids knew how to manage both worlds. And parents were in charge in one and school was in charge in the other. Yes, they were parent teaching meetings and they would speak, but not that much. And then we have this virtual world coming over everything and mixing, stirring everything up. It seems to be we're not up to date in preparing to this uh, digital world. And we're definitely experiencing a gap between 
the awareness of parents and the knowledge of educators. What are your thoughts about that and what we need to do as a community, not only a school, to actually start addressing that? I think the paradigm has changed, as you said. You know, in the old days, uh, you know, the parents had nothing to do with the school. Um, but today we need to form partnerships. I think parents and educators and schools need to realize we can only do this together. Uh, we have to work together if we want to help the children, want to educate them effectively. Um, it can't just be the school and it can't just be the parents. And I think that's why schools should be trying to work on and cultivate better relationships with parents, um, a respectful, mutual collaboration type of partnership for the best interest of the child. I think children today, we, we underestimate how difficult their lives are. This virtual world, if you put all the exposure, which we've spoken about aside, if you put uh, the social issues that come through that aside, there's the perpetual mode of this virtual world. These children are always switched on. And that in of itself creates a huge emotional toll. They have their phones during the day. They have their phones at night. They have them on the weekends. And as you correctly said, Rabbi, you know, if you were having a difficult time at school when you were a kid, you left school and then it would, you were done for the day. But today it doesn't happy work day, like happy that. If you're child, yeah, if you're having, if you're having a, a difficult day at school with particular children, it only carries on after hours because you're always on your phone. And, and I think we need a long, hard look at how we work together better as schools and as parents to really help the children holistically because they don't have a respite anymore. And it's a combination of boundaries. It's a combination of better partnerships between schools and parents. Um, but we do need to address this together. That, that's what I'm sure of. This can't just be done by parents and it can't just be done by schools. Um, it can only really be tackled by both working together. Uh, with yeah, with complete trust. You know, interesting question that came up actually uh, last week. We were uh, on the show was actually a, a therapist from your school, uh, Lisa. And one of the questions that came up uh, in the discussion is: parents sometimes feel that they're struggling to find the boundary between keeping a good relationship with a teacher and you know being too much involved and too on top of things. What is your recommendation? How do we keep this balance between, you know, we want to work as partners and today more than in the past that we must do that. At the same time, there's a limit of how much a teacher can handle uh, 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 kids at the same time. And, and you don't want to overprotect your child because your child also needs to live and, and learn how to deal with real reality. Where would you put your boundaries in? I think for me, and maybe this is just a personal perspective, is when the emotional world of the child is at risk or the academic world of the child is at risk, that's when really a parent should not hold back and should get involved actively because they, that's their role. They have to step in. They have to make sure that their child is getting the best academically and emotionally. But other than that, parents shouldn't sweat the small stuff. You know, the, we see a lot of uh, helicopter parenting where parents are involved in too many of the minutia that they shouldn't be. Um, to some extent, a parent really, when they send a child to school, has to let go, trust the school, don't sweat the small stuff, don't be on your teacher's back about little things. If you really are concerned because there's a risk to your child, that's a whole different story. Then you need to get involved as a parent, and, a parent, and schools have to be open to that communication. And I think schools, schools have to be open to communicating more frequently and more openly with their parents as well. Often parents will get involved because there's like radio silence and the parents don't know what's going on at the school. So I think schools have to communicate effectively and regularly with their parents as best as possible. And parents have to know not to sweat the small stuff. Don't get involved if you don't have to get involved. Don't drive the teacher crazy when there's nothing really that's of major consequence for your child. But if there's a potential risk to your child, 
with undoubtedly a parent has to get involved. So it's that balance. Schools have to over-communicate possibly or make sure that the parents are kept in the loop and parents have to draw the line between sweating the small stuff and getting involved when it's really, really necessary and critical for the child. Amazing. Going back to curriculum a bit, we know that in the curriculum there's been uh, – schools have been going on for quite a few years and there's been the subjects that we're used to and it's uh, not ma- not that different between when we were in school as kids or our parents were in school as kids and what our kids are seeing today in school uh, and, and both dual curriculums. What is the room for new subjects to be brought in, brought into the curriculum? For instance, online safety or – exploring the digital world or things that are more relevant to today, is there room to have a discussion of adding more subjects to the curriculum or the kids are overwhelmed anyways and we just need to stick to what we've done for generations? So I think what's important maybe just to point out is just because the subjects are the same doesn't mean that they taught the same way okay. and doesn't mean that the content is the same. So I think, uh, I think you know, you, you're 100% right. If it's the same subject taught in the same way as it was uh, 20, 30 years ago, that's a problem. Um, and I think a lot of schools are grappling with that way of changing from the traditional mode to using new ways of teaching, new ways of engaging students. So I've got no problem with the same subjects, but I do have Other a methods. problem if they just do okay. like, Exactly. So, so we have to change methodology. That's number one. So the old subjects are still important, and, and there's a reason they're taught to build critical skill that children need in numeracy and literacy. And over above, they're just to expand their horizons in your social sciences and your natural sciences. So the subjects are okay, but they do need to – be taught in a more engaging way, and I, and I hope all schools are engaging with that um, actively because that's very important. In terms of other subjects, we do have to look for new ways, not only the ones you mentioned, Rabbi, that are focused on you know online safety or well-being, but coding, robotics. What are Completely. the skills that the kids are going to need in the future? So schools do have to start adopting new curriculum, looking at new things, and change is hard um, for all schools. Change is hard for teachers, and I think um, we can't be afraid. We have to step into change. We have to try and do new things. Um, and there is a lot of flexibilities in school, particularly in your primary school years, up until about grade nine. There is flexibility within the curriculum to try new things. And schools need to try new things um, to engage the kids. And all of the schools should have some element of LO, um, life orientation, which creates the space to really grapple with issues of mental health and social well-being. And, and schools need to find that space and use that space to the best benefit, making sure that they're filling it with content that is really valuable for the children, that can enhance their lives. So if schools are doing what they did with the same subjects as they did 20 years ago and aren't looking in the mirror and looking for ways to change and bring in what the kids need today, then they probably are being uh, negligent in their duties. And I, I know running a big school system, that change is hard and we, it takes time and that's fine. But as long as schools are engaging with change and leaning into change and trying to bring in the change, then they're doing the right thing and they have to. That's an imperative of Chinuch. Um, we know that Shlomo HaMelech said, Pidarko, that you have to educate every child according to their way. And in today's child is not the same child that it was 30 years ago. And therefore, every child has to, every school has to step into change and be prepared to, to try and do what they need to for today's child. Yeah, completely, or three years ago even. Um, but yeah, even, you know, as you mentioned, coding, which is huge. And even the question of where do we put the balance between writing and typing? I mean, the future of, of you know, coming up, we're not going to have that. If you have a child who writes very fast and proper, but his typing is slower, then we have a bit of a problem. We have one more announcement, and then we are going to continue and end this conversation. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Uh, a short break. We will be right back to uh, for the final discussion. Hi FM, one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life.
We are back to the last few minutes of today's show and in discussion with Rabbi Ricky Sif, who is the general director of the South African Board of Jewish Education. Very fascinating discussion we had today. Wrapping up and, and going back to, you know, the, the metric results and the kids who are starting metric now. What is your message to the community as, as the leader of the Jewish Board of Education? What would you, what would you say we need to focus on and take this school year to achieve? So I think the first thing is just to applaud, um, the kids who are about to get the results and the students who are going through matric now in 2023. The, the amount of effort and the amount of work these kids put into their school careers is unbelievable. Um, they're writing exams for most of the year. It takes a huge amount of diligence, of resilience, of persistence. And I think these kids are absolutely unbelievable. And we need to applaud them. Um, they, they deal with far more pressure than we did 15, 20 years ago. Pressure to get into universities, the pressure to go overseas into universities. There, there's a huge amount of pressure. You know, I, I, the, the concept of extra lessons is one that always comes up. Um, back in the day, in the 90s and 80s, children who needed extra help went for extra lessons. But today, the top, top students are going for extra lessons Completely. to make sure they get the, the distinctions they can. So these children are incredible, and we need to applaud them. The second thing I want to say is we applaud them irrespective of their results because the amount of effort that goes into it, it doesn't matter what they got, but as long as a child tried their hardest, gave it their all, there's amazing successes in all of the schools. And the successes aren't always the distinctions. They're the children who went from getting a... A 50 to a 60 or a 40 to a 50 or a child who managed to maintain a B average over the course of the year. All of these kids, they know what they're going through and all of them are a success. So despite the, the fact that you will see distinctions being celebrated by all of the schools and good results, that's fantastic and that's important and it's a huge credit to our teachers and our principals. Um, but each child is actually a winner. Any child who gets through matric has done brilliantly and they deserve to be applauded and celebrated. I think that's the first thing to get across. And the second thing to get across for the children who maybe didn't do as well as they wanted to, who may feel disappointed, to those children, I would say, you know what? You're going to get another chance. Matric is not the be-all and end-all. It's hugely important, and you invest a huge amount in it, but it's not the be-all and end-all. There is life after matric. There will be other opportunities. You will be able to forge new paths and start new jobs and get into universities. So matric is not the only door that will open to you. And I think as much as we celebrate those who did brilliantly and we celebrate every child, uh, the children who leave feeling disappointed really should dust themselves off, get up and keep trying because matric is not the be-all and end-all. They will go on to great and bright futures um, once the results are out and once their matric careers end. So they've got to keep their heads up. They've got to be positive and just know that uh, in 10 years' time, people won't ask them what their matric results were. They're more interested in knowing, are they good people? Have they given their best? Are they resilient? Do they fight hard and push hard and work hard? And I think, if anything, that's the biggest plus of matric is the fact that these children learn how to work. They really push themselves, and it's that which stands them in fantastic stead is developing a work ethic that carries them through the rest of their lives. So I think that's that, that's something that can't be understated. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, and I, I think that's that what you just stated is is the reason of the success and, and perfect. Thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for all the amazing work you are doing as the uh, director of the South African Board of Jewish Education and all your many years in leading education in schools it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for being with us today. 101.9 with Rabbi G. Another show has come, great show has come to an end, and we will be back next Monday, 2 to 3. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, 
and we will keep improving ourselves through this show.